What does the invention of stocks in the Netherlands in the 1600s have to do with whether cryptocurrency is a new asset class? Stay tuned to this podcast to explore the connection. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Johan Schmiegel, you've got the world's highest IQ. Yes, 247. Wow. Did you know that thanks to Salesforce with Einstein AI, everyone's smarter? Now everyone's an Einstein, just like you. But I'm the smartest. Not anymore. With connected data and trusted AI, everyone can give customers experiences they've only dreamed of. Oh, look, here's a few Einsteins now. Hey, hi. Hola, amigo. Everyone's an Einstein? It's okay, Johan. Let it happen. The number one AI CRM. Now everyone's an Einstein with Salesforce. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. Kathy Marcus is co-CEO and global COO of Pegram Real Estate, a $208 billion investor in real estate, part of the giant real estate investment firm. Pegram, she has had a number of different positions within PGM, including managing their flagship core real estate uh, fund before she moved into management. Uh, she has been on all of the big lists, Barron's 100 Most Influential Women in U.S. Finance, lots and lots of others. Uh, there are few people in the world better situated to discuss commercial real estate investing from every perspective. They do debt. They do equity. They invest in public real estate. They invest in private. She has lived and invested through not just the great financial crisis, but the SNL crisis and a number of other fascinating um, experiences in real estate. If you're at all interested in learning how a large uh, investor in global real estate operates, then you're going to really enjoy this conversation. With no further ado, my discussion with PGM's Kathy Marcus. Thank you. It's good to have you here. So, so let's dive into your background, um, starting with your undergraduate work. You you study real estate finance and entrepreneurial management at Wharton. As an undergraduate, you go to NYU to get a master's in real estate investment and development. So you knew from when you were essentially a teenager, you wanted to be working in real estate. And I'm very fortunate that it worked out because there's no plan B there. You can see I did not study anything else. So people often ask me how at the age literally of 17, I knew that I wanted to be in real estate. And I I think that um, I kind of triangulated on it. I have no family history. I have no, I you know knew a real estate developer I thought was really great. I knew I wanted to do something in business. I was always good at math, but I really, um, I just didn't relate to things that were more esoteric, bonds, options. It just wasn't doing it for me. And I always really loved the built environment. I like architecture. I like, um, as a real estate person, you walk through your assets, you can touch and feel <laughs> things. I love to see things 
things developed. I um, like the idea of kind of um, urban planning. I always say if I hadn't been a real estate investor, I would have loved to have um, studied more about urban planning. I like placemaking. So really, if you combine wanting to be an investor with liking architecture, design, placemaking, um, it really leads you to real estate. You, you anticipated one of my questions, which was, was anyone in the family in real estate? My mom was a real estate agent. Like home, de- everything from home designs and renovation to pricing and financing was dinner table conversation in my house. Nothing like that from you. This just wholly uh, sprung up out of nowhere. Pretty much. I mean, my dad um, was a, a small entrepreneur um, and did invest in some commercial real estate, but really not in a primary way. Um, and my mom is a speech pathologist. So um, our dinner table conversation definitely had a business orientation, especially a small business owner. And so um, I definitely learned a lot there. And I think it also, my dad's business was global. And so it um, piqued an interest in me in working internationally, but the real estate thing was kind of out of the blue. So, so you graduate both undergrad and graduate with just real estate related um, training, what were your first few jobs after school like? I had a very traditional start. I started off um, as an analyst, and I worked initially. My first two jobs were um, with syndicators, essentially, in a, in a business that doesn't exist anymore as it did. I worked for a very large syndicator right out of school, which was right around the time the tax laws changed. And so that whole business was upended. And Wait, Before you yes. go further, define what a syndicator is for people who may not remember that. Sure. Essentially, um, you buy assets. It could be all kinds of assets. The company that I worked for uh, was called Integrated Resources. And we did a lot of real estate, but also things like airplane leasing and um, movies. In fact, Dirty Dancing was one of the big movies that we financed while I was there. And so they needed people to help acquire the real estate. And then also one of my primary jobs was to help capitalize it and find financing for it because the idea of syndication is that you make a giant purchase and then you sell it off in smaller units to really more of a retail investor. And in those days, it could be as um, small as like a twenty-five to $50,000 unit that would be sold through a broker-dealer, a Shearson-Lehman, lots of people who are no longer in the game. And, um, and it was a way for individual investors to, A, own assets in a small slice they could never access themselves. But in those days, um, they were very tax-driven. Very favorable treatment of of those purchases, not like regular stocks and bonds. Exactly. And all that went away with a couple of tax changes, first Reagan, and then I think it was Clinton did some changes as well. Exactly. Um, As did integrated resources. (laughs) (laughs) Went away. Yeah, exactly. Oh, that's very funny. Um, So so you end up at at PGM eventually, and you start out um, at – did you start out at the flagship core equity real estate fund, or did you work your way towards that? Because eventually – You were running that for a few years. I did. I worked my way toward that. I had two stops before then. I worked in sort of a quasi-portfolio management role for like a single client account type business. And then I went to be um, the chief underwriter for the U.S. investments and really got to underwrite all new investments in the U.S., all across the country, all asset classes. It was a tremendous experience for me, something that we often have had as a rotational position. So I did it for three years, and it was a a really great growth experience. Now, when you say all asset classes... Sorry, all sectors of real estate. Oh, okay. So not... Because at one point in time, you were doing something with equity. Is that right? Head of U.S. equity? Head of U.S. equity at PGM Real Estate, meeting equity versus debt. 
not equities gotcha. versus got equities. Got it, got it. All yeah. right, I want to make yes. So it's been real estate all the way down. That's, that's all it is. Real estate through and through. Equity, debt, private, public, but always real estate. So tell us a little bit about the experience of running the core flagship real estate fund. What was that like? You you did that for like eight years, is that right? I did it for longer, it was over 10. Wow. And um, it was a tremendous experience. And actually you had asked um, you know, whether that was my first stop at Pigeon Real Estate, formerly Prudential Real Estate Investors. And it wasn't, but it was the job that I wanted. When I when I took um, the job, my first job at um, PGM essentially, the person who was running the core fund at the time was someone who I um, sought out as a mentor because I knew that that was the job that I wanted and I, I worked toward that. So I was on that fund team for over 10 years, mm-hmm. spanning kind of the run up to the GFC. So lots of good times for only about um, two to three years of my first couple of years there. And then um, I worked on it throughout the GFC and then became the senior portfolio manager during the recovery period. It was quite a time to um, be running that kind of a fund or even just working on that kind of a fund. It was a, you know, I had seen um, other crises. I mean, the SNL crisis in the real estate business was something that um, was a, a very pivotal learning experience for me. And I came into the GFC with some of those skills from working through the SNL crisis, but every crisis is different. And um, you know, when I was working through the SNL crisis, I was much more junior. So someone else, um, you know, was worried about what would happen. They just told me what to do. And now this time, I had to worry about what would happen. And uh, it was it was a great experience. So when I hear GFC and SNL crisis, I think workouts, reorgs, and distressed investing. Did you do all of that? What What did you actually do in the 0809 era, maybe even a little before when sure. things had rolled over? Well, in the SNL crisis, I was doing primarily workouts, both debt and equity workouts, and um, I learned so much doing that and was also in um, a big dispositions role in terms of um, real estate owned that have been foreclosed upon, but also um, performing and unperforming loans, commercial mortgage um, securitization, and even residential mortgage securitization. So I was um, very, very distressed oriented during the uh, SNL crisis. And I would recommend to anyone who wants to learn about a business, um, work through a major crisis, and you're going to get 15 years of experience in three years. That that was my experience. To, to be fair, the SNL crisis, I, I don't want to downplay it too much, but it almost seems quaint yes. compared to the GFC. It, it was, it you didn't get that sense of free fall. It no. was clearly a mess, but it was like, all right, we'll figure this out. The GFC in real time was like, holy cow, this thing is, we're off the rails here. Exactly. Very different, right? Yeah. And in particular in real estate, because the SNL crisis, you could certainly make an argument that we shot ourselves in the foot in in the SNL crisis. Yeah, but that was really all the banks that were doing it. It was not... the banks, but there were a lot of empty buildings. I mean, we were yeah. building and building and building. Texas, notorious yes. for see-through buildings. See-through buildings, yep. exactly. So, so that was very different. And, and you're right. It felt like real estate was in free fall, and clearly the banking system was in free fall. But the government was there with you know the big RTC bailout, and um, it didn't feel like the world was falling apart. Right. The GFC felt like the world was falling right. apart, and it was very difficult to understand. I think that the SNL crisis, you could understand that the banks were just 
lending, 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 and building, building, and we had empty buildings. Any, even if you're not in real estate, you understood what that was about. The GFC was really um, a lot of esoteric financial products that you know the average person didn't understand. It actually ended up that a lot of financial professionals <laughs> didn't understand them either. We didn't know that at the time, but it really felt so much more systemic, and it felt like this you know giant thing that was almost not understandable to many people had gone awry. Good, good times. You know, yeah. <laughs> those of us who were working in the world of finance then, if you were not on the wrong side of what was going on, it was endlessly fascinating and just, uh, you know, a graduate degree. And if right. you were in charge of assets that were collapsing, it had to be just nightmarish. Every, every day it was relentless and just never seemed to, to end. So that was, you know, all the people I know who started working in the industry mm. after that, it's like, oh, you guys missed the big party. It was right. amazing. Exactly. Really. Well, you, you see that now. You can tell who missed the party because um, it took a lot of people who had, you know, 10 or 12 exper years of experience in our business. It took them way too long to figure out that that the world had changed because they hadn't experienced the world changing. And, you know, those of you, those of us who've been through it a few times, you start to get that spidey sense that things are not as they should be. And you kind of go right into that mode of like, okay, stop spending money, shut down all the deals. And and that's much more difficult for someone who hasn't experienced it before. Immediate survival instincts exactly. kick in. And, and, you know, the ironic thing is there's a generation who only last year discovered, hey, you know, the rates can go up also. Right. That was like an, a, 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 you know, an epiphany for a subgroup of people who it's like, oh, I didn't know they could raise rates. I thought right. they could only cut them. <laughs> so, so now you're really in a um, management position. Mm -hmm. What was that transition like from being a real estate investor to managing a very large real estate group of professionals? It was a um, much more complicated transition than I had expected it to be. Um, you know, it's an interesting story that I tell, which is that our CEO at the time came to me. This is when I was running our largest fund. I had only been an investor in my entire career. And he said, I'd really like for you to be my chief operating officer. And I actually said, which is, you know, embarrassing, but um, it is unfortunately something that women, especially of my age, do. I said, oh, actually, I'm not qualified for that job. I only took, you know, three accounting classes and I'm, you know, I, I don't think I'm your person. And he said, if I wanted an accountant, I wouldn't have come to you. I'm looking for a partner. I'm looking for someone who wants to learn how to run a global business. And I said, well, you know, I feel like I kind of know how to run a business. I'm running the largest fund. You know, there's lots of people working on this fund, huge revenues. I, 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 I know what I'm doing. And he said, you know what, I try it for three years and I, I bet you're going to learn a lot. And he was 100% right. You know, learning how to keep the trains on the tracks. When you're an investment professional and I was the worst, I was a massive prima donna. I had no appreciation <laughs> for what went on behind the scenes. If there was an error in a report or a number, I went ballistic. I had no understanding of what it takes to deliver operationally. And um, I learned quite a bit about that. And it's really been terrific. And I, um, I recommend it to all investors who want to ultimately run a business take on an operational role because you will be shocked by how much you learn. So so um, there's so much stuff to unpack there. I have to work my way back to your initial response mm -hmm. when offered the operating position. It's kind of funny because you're pointing out like this inherent 
difference between men and women. Men are just clueless as to our own lack of skills. <laughs> but, oh, sure, what the hell? How hard can it be? Let's rush in. Whereas, and I don't want to mansplain sexism to you, but <laughs> it seems that women are more thoughtful in saying, hey, I don't know if I'm qualified for this. Um, whereas a dude is just like, sure, well, I'll give that a, wait, fight a bear with my bear? Okay, where do I go? <laughs> men right. men are um, just the sort of self-confidence, unjustified, I wonder how much that explains what we've seen, especially in finance, in in the gender gap at, at senior levels, which is certainly getting better. It is point point uh, at present. But I'm just curious if that philosophical difference is why men rush in and women sort of think about it and say, well, let's really weigh the pros and cons. A hundred percent. And, and you know, interestingly, you would certainly not be the first man to mansplain sexism right, to me. Right. It happens all the time, which just kind of goes back to the self-awareness, it's right? It's hilarious. It, it happens constantly. Um, but I will say things have gotten a lot better, but, you know, somewhere in the middle is probably, you know, a much better place to be because mm-hmm. I will say that, um, you know, women have a tendency, if there are a hundred things that you need to have for a job, if they have 99, they think they're not qualified, myself right. included, right? I think I've gotten better. But, um, you know, if there are 100 things and a man might say, you know what, I could do 60 or 70% of that, that's probably good enough, right? I think you're being yeah. generous. Yeah. I think, like, a, 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 <laughs> you know, a guy, I know a dude who's in that space. I, I could do what he does. I think it's like that sort of, you know, not to overstate male arrogance and recklessness, but there is certainly a degree of, hey, worst comes to worst, I land on my face. And I think to some degree that's positive, but often leads to the Peter principle. So exactly, and I do hope that you know younger women in business broadly and in finance, um, you know, can can learn from those lessons. That's why I, as embarrassing of a story as it is, I always tell it, especially to to younger women, because I don't want them to make that same mistake. I was very fortunate that um, you know I had a boss who really pushed me. Because that I, I wouldn't have taken it necessarily of my own volition. Huh, really, really interesting. It's a technology, it's a new asset class, and it's a new monetary system. That's Kathy Wood, CEO of asset manager ARK Invest, talking about cryptocurrency. And that's just the kind of cheerleading you'd expect from someone who created one of the first Bitcoin ETFs. But history demonstrates she could be right. There are striking parallels between the development of crypto and the creation of one of the first asset classes, stocks, by the Dutch in the 1600s. To explore more, listen to Evolving Money from Coinbase and Bloomberg Media Studios, wherever you get your podcasts. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. So so let's talk a little bit about that giant portfolio of investments. What type of real estate does PGM invest in? Do you have specific geographies, size types? What What do you think of? We have a very, very broad investing mandate. We invest in in the U.S., in Latin America, which is really primarily Mexico at this point, across Europe, the U.K., and across Asia. 
So we really hit all the major markets and all the major geographies. And also we invest in pretty much all the major food groups and even some of the alternative food groups um, in real estate. So everything from very traditional office, which I'm sure we'll talk more about, all kinds of residential, retail, data centers, industrial, manufactured housing, seniors housing, you name it, and we probably have a bucket of capital for it. So so let's dive into those sectors. Um, I didn't hear you mention laboratory or medical, which I know is an up-and-coming yep. area. Is that a space you guys are in as well? Warehouses is another Definitely. fast-growing space. So, Definitely. so let's, let's break those down. Let's start sure. with um, office. What What's going on in the world of um, office investing? Are there certain things you guys like to invest office-wide? Are there areas you stay away from? What's happening in that space? So right now I'm gonna talk about traditional office, not about medical office or, mm-hmm. or um, lab science, but in the traditional office space, we're not investing in a tremendous amount of office right now. Like everyone else, we're in a little bit of a wait and see. We have an existing office portfolio that we're dealing with. And you know, I'm sitting here in your Bloomberg office and it's a buzzing hive of lots of people. Right. There are many office buildings you could walk into in any city around the world where that would not be the case. So this is clearly a class A building. And when we look at other class A buildings on Park Avenue, they seem to be fairly, you know, 75, 80% buzzing. I, I don't mm-hmm. even want to say occupied. Right. Um, but once you drop to the class B buildings, it's a whole different story. How do you think about the different quality of real estate investing? And is that reflected in their prices yet? So in particular in office, you know, there are going to be winners and losers. And the winners are going to be, I wouldn't even say just A, not all the A inventory is really going to be a winner. You have oh, to be really? kind of a high a high A. You have to be an A that isn't just an A because of its location. It's an A because it also has ESG attributes. It has wellness attributes. It has things that draw employees back to the office and make them want to be there. And it, you have to, in these days, when, when I was young, the office was shelter and a place where people could make sure you worked all day. Mm-hmm. Now the office is, it has to be better than your home or people are not gonna come. So here in your office, there's lots of free food and free snacks right. and it's nice and bright and there's lots of vibrant and smart people walking around, that's a draw. But if you're in an old office building without great light, you have low ceilings, you have no amenities, you don't have a lot of wellness attributes, to your building, you're not near public transportation, you're gonna have a hard time attracting people to come to your office, particularly younger people. And if you don't have the ESG qualifications, it's even worse. So we'll talk more about ESG later. Tell us about wellness. How does a building contribute to overall wellness? Many ways, but I would say that the primary way that really has been underscored even more so since COVID is in air quality. Mm-hmm. And air quality is huge. And and there is a lot of data around employees feeling better, not getting sick as often, having more energy, not being exhausted. That's around air quality and fresh air in particular is very, very important. And, and that's not an expensive or difficult retrofit, is it? That's something that can be done fairly easily. If I, I think it was 60 minutes or somebody talked about that not too long ago. That assumes you have modern systems. So that that's a big assumption. Not all buildings have the systems that would make that an easy conversion. Um, but there's lots of other things you could do. You could have a gym. You could, you know, encourage your employees to get outside, you know, not in the city as much, but 
other places, um, and increasingly in Manhattan, people have outdoor spaces for their employees so they can get out and get some fresh air, get some sunshine. You know, instead of drinking coffee in a cold, dark room, you could sit on a patio. It's those types of things that are good for your physical health and your mental health. Huh, really interesting. Let, let's talk about some other sectors. You mentioned um, medical office and lab space. Yes. What's going on in there? Is that still a growth area? It's still a growth area. I would say that some of the hype, particularly of the lab space, has been taken out, and I think that's a good thing for a while. People were um, buying what I would say would be subpar office buildings and turning them into lab buildings, and lab buildings are best purpose-built. There's a lot of extra bells and whistles that you need for a lab building. If you think of like the absolute perfect lab building, it's going to have, you know, a lot more load bearing because you're going to have really heavy machinery. It's going to have higher ceilings. It's going to have a lot of natural light. It's going to have extra water. It's going to have redundant electricity. There are experiments being run in these spaces that if, you know, you have a power outage, you could lose 15 years worth of work and data. So you really have to have, you know, a lot of redundancies in your systems. It's very expensive to build, but the good thing is that it's very reusable. If you have one tenant... And, and they leave, you can pretty much have a plug and play with the next tenant. So I think it's great that there's less of this kind of conversion into lab space than there had been. But the reality is that a lot of things that are really demographic trends, um, an aging population, people living longer, um, you know, advances in healthcare, needing to have green energy sources, needing to be able to create you know clean water, a lot of this experimentation and a lot of the venture capital funding is all occurring in these lab buildings. Hmm. Really interesting. You mentioned converting offices to lab buildings. There's been a lot of chatter about converting all of the excess office space to residential. Uh, Some people say that's much harder than it appears, especially with some of the bigger citywide block buildings that are from the 60s and 70s. They don't have the light, they don't have the access to windows. What, what's the prospect for those sort of conversions? And and let me just throw in, I remember post 9-11, mm-hmm. the whole lower Manhattan, a ton of those offices got converted to uh, residential very, very successfully. Yes. What are the odds of that happening in other city centers? So we did some of those projects um, in lower Manhattan. And in lower Manhattan, the floor plates tend to be smaller. The buildings are smaller they're they're thinner and they're they're taller right so you're never too far from a window never too far from a window so it it is a little bit easier especially some of the um, historic buildings downtown one of the ones that we converted into high-end condos you know had been an old jp morgan building it was where his office was Mm -hmm. so those buildings were just smaller by definition smaller floor plates more windows Um, there's a lot of capital being raised to convert office to residential. And it's a really kind of a romantic notion that we have too much office and we have a structural shortage of housing. Wouldn't it be like the nicest thing in the world if you could take all of this, you know, bad office, if you will, and convert it into affordable housing? Wouldn't that be fantastic? First of all, the numbers don't work. Right. The the physical structures don't lend themselves that well. There's probably, you know, under 5% of the office stock that would lend itself to that and it's very expensive in a way you would have to be able to get the land for um free 
and and someone would have to pay to demolish the existing office building. So it's it's really very so you're not very even difficult. You're talking about converting. You're talking about knocking down a functional but unattractive building and putting up a brand new high rise. In many ways, that would be actually the cheaper route to go. Wow. Because you might say a functional building, it's not functional for residential. It doesn't have the windows. It doesn't have the plumbing. Um, you know, you have to break things into units. You don't want units that look like bowling alleys. You right. need more elevators. I mean, there's just lots of stuff that you need. Um, so there will be some of that done, and some of it's happening. Some of it's happening right now in Lower Manhattan and other cities, and in D.C. in particular. But it's not. It's not going to be a wholesale solution. So, so you mentioned ESG earlier. H- how do you? How does PGM integrate ESG factors into their investment process? What does that mean? for real estate investing? We integrate ESG into everything that we do from the very beginning of identifying a potential investment through acquisition, through operations, and through disposition. And you know there is um, a lot of you know political consternation, um, a lot of a divide, particularly in the United States, around ESG, where there are there's a politicization of ESG. In real estate, we're actually very fortunate because there's really no conflict with you know, ESG, especially the E, in, in real estate investing. If you have a more sustainable building, you're using less energy, you're using less water, you have um, more efficient systems, you are near public transportation, you have an ESG certification, you're going to have higher income therefore a higher value of your asset. You're going to be able to attract the best tenants. The best tenants are not going into a building that does not have an ESG certification. And if you're near public transportation, you know every tenant is looking for that. So I really feel that ESG is just, it's just table stakes in huh. real estate investing. So we're fortunate that we don't have the controversy. It's not just higher income. You're describing much lower costs as well. Exactly. So the building is a more profitable unit uh, versus a comparable non ESG compliant type of building is that exactly is that the and you know it's a way if you reduce your operating expenses you're just increasing your bottom line and if you take an older building that is just like you know it, it's is leaking energy all over the place and you upgrade it to have the systems you have just completely improved the value of your asset because we value real estate based on the net operating income. And, and that is the key to being able to increase value. Kind of hard to politicize improving your bottom line, isn't exactly. it? Exactly. So, so let's talk about the target net zero emissions from real estate projects by 2050. What does net zero mean and how does one get there? So there's lots of ways to get there. And, and net zero um, you know, can mean, um, there, there are various ways in real estate pathways to get to net zero. There are already several buildings, office buildings around the country that are net zero. And that was accomplished through a variety of things. One, using um, you know, different building techniques, different building materials. You can use green concrete. You can have less embedded carbon. For the institutional real estate industry, embedded carbon is a huge issue because you buy an asset and there's already this giant carbon footprint that you had no control over and maybe it was created 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. So that that's a whole other issue, but things like green concrete, things like um, different sensors that, that you can use that um, help you build more efficiently. And and if you look at you know ESG in its entirety, which is also a lot about safety 
and and keeping people safe and healthy, that there are lots of new construction techniques that um, it's just safer construction, where you might have robots doing things that were very unsafe. You might have drones, you know, photographing buildings instead of having people having to go up on scaffolding. So we, we have a lot of opportunity in the built environment to um, mitigate embedded carbon, but also to um, reduce our use of carbon. Huh, really, really interesting. So let's talk a little bit about what's been going on the past couple of years and what, what it looks like over the next few years. You're not taking out a mortgage to buy a single family home, you're doing these big projects. How does the dislocation and volatility of the enormous rate increases we've seen in 21 and 22 affect uh, the projects you look at? It actually affects um, you know commercial real estate investors in much the same way as it would a, a residential investor. Just the cost of carry. The cost of carry and um, you know a, a lack of liquidity, which is f- much worse in the commercial markets than it is in the residential markets. You can't just uh, have an open house and sell a fifty-story <laughs> building over the weekend. That doesn't exactly happen. no that that doesn't work. So um, so the the lack of liquidity is um, you know is often at the heart of every real estate crisis. That we have, and and that's really driving you know a lot of what's going on, which is of course all driven by the changes in the real in the interest rates, and you know we're coming upon six quarters you know into this new interest rate environment, and we had you know a nice long free money party that was really good for real estate. It was fantastic. Twenty for years, real estate. Right? It what was could be bad? it was great, and um, and so of course you know, as works in real estate, that your interest rates come down and the yields on the investments come down and everyone's expectations are, you know, not too far off from where, you know, treasuries used to be, right? And and that is, you know, the treasuries were so low that you could be have a 4%, 5% yield, even 3% on a real estate investment and still have a nice cushion over treasuries. So it was a very, very accommodative environment for real estate, and now that has all changed. And um, you know, in private markets, the repricing always takes a lot longer than public markets. And you even see that within real estate, looking at the real estate private markets and the real estate public markets. There's and you a guys huge invest divide. in both, right? We do, you do both private and public. Yes, investing. we do. So, so if t- tell us a little bit about um, how how they've responded. I'm going to assume private markets react a little more slowly than public markets do? Tell us about that process. The The private markets react much more slowly and in a much more measured way and without the same sort of, um, you know, level of um, very, very quick reaction and maybe even overreaction. You hardly ever see that in the private markets. And and the, the reason is you are in, in the real estate public markets, the market, meaning the stock market, is determining value, and and there's a lot more at play there than just the value of the real estate assets. Whereas in the private markets, it's appraisal-based. And so it takes a long time for appraisals to really reflect market value. And part of that is the methodology, which has been around forever, which really relies very heavily on comparable transactions. And comparable transactions in a period of you know little to no liquidity, they're just not happening. And so appraisers need a data set and a set of facts to create 
a record in order to um, substantiate lowering values and increasing yields. And they just haven't really had that. Now that's starting to happen and we are seeing a repricing, but it's very, very slow. It will ultimately probably be a much slower repricing than we had in the GFC. The GFC took eight quarters in private real estate to completely adjust, but the vast majority was a shock in the first two quarters. And then it just kind of, you know, eked out over several more quarters. We have something totally different here where the first couple quarters after after the interest rate increases, it was almost like people were in denial and nobody really knew what to do because we had very little price adjustment. And now that, you know, some people have a gun to their head, there are some transactions that are happening, we're starting to see, you know, um, a trail, if you will, of evidence of where values should be. But you know, most of these assets are are priced quarterly, very mm-hmm. different than the daily pricing in the stock market. And if it takes, you know, if it used to take, um, you know, call it forty five to sixty days to complete a transaction from beginning to end, it's now double or triple that. So it's just taking huh. much longer to get the evidence. It's a technology, it's a new asset class, and it's a new monetary system. That's Kathy Wood, CEO of asset manager ARK Invest, talking about cryptocurrency. And that's just the kind of cheerleading you'd expect from someone who created one of the first Bitcoin ETFs. But history demonstrates she could be right. There are striking parallels between the development of crypto and the creation of one of the first asset classes stocks by the Dutch in the 1600s. To explore more, listen to Evolving Money from Coinbase and Bloomberg Media Studios, wherever you get your podcasts. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. So so the October data for single-family homes, October 2023, record low number of mm-hmm. transactions are you suggesting that uh, in the private commercial real estate, you're also seeing much slower transactions and that's what's causing this lag for a repricing? How yes. do you work around that? Yes, much, much, much lower transaction activity. Um, and it's interesting because you know, for a, a large owner like us, these days when we're talking about transactions, we're mostly talking about dispositions. Um, in a normal business cycle, we would, when we say transactions, we're mostly talking about acquisitions. So it's very, very different. And that impacts both the debt and equity sides of the business. So on the equity side, um, we would like to sell some assets and improve our liquidity. And there's not a lot of buyers there. The buyers that are there are generally buying without any debt. So if you think about the fact that we're also a lender, that really impacts our lending business. Our lending business has much lower production values um, across all asset types than it's had historically. And again, it's because of the lack of transaction activity. So I'm assuming you are both buying and selling within the same quarter, within the same month, 
what's the thought process like about what properties you want to sell and what similarly how do you think about what you want to buy at the same time you're really reconfiguring yes. your holdings yes i'd say there's two categories of of the types of assets we want to sell right now one is um you know kind of just bottom line those that will sell so if we need to raise some capital if we have some debt that we want to pay off if we want to redeploy some capital you can sell multifamily in the southeast this is in the u.s um, and you can sell industrial those are the two things that that sell right now um, and even then you are probably going to take a lot longer selling those assets. And very interestingly, you might not recognize one name on the list of bidders. Oh, really? It's not the big institutional names. It's not the people like us. It's people who are um, buying unlevered, people with friends and family, family offices, um, really more in, in your space than in mine. And very interestingly, we often have never heard of the people. And they want a hard asset as opposed to... Uh, a cash flow based on, all right, it'll cost us this much to borrow, and here's what we'll see in income, and that's what will be a revenue. This is something totally different. They want to have a hard asset and actually own it. Right, and they um, might want to own it for a very, very long time, especially huh. you know those kind of owners. And right now, it's an advantage to be an all-cash buyer. And during this cycle of very low interest rates, it was not an advantage to be right. an all-cash buyer. When when cash is free, exactly, there's, there, that you know who, who doesn't make any difference. Which kind of you're sort of describing, like the edges of a distressed um, market. But I don't get the sense that the market is fully the real estate market is fully distressed. How how do you identify? Hey, we can pick up stuff really inexpensively. Mm-hmm flip side of this is, hey, maybe we're not going to get what we want for right. our holdings. How, how do you balance that? Well, it, it, it is a balance. And you know it is true to say that right now, the distress is in the capital markets. It's in the ability to get debt and the ability to find equity if you want to do a development. Forget about construction loans, which are almost impossible to get right now. But f- from a fundamentals perspective, with the exception of office, and in particular, traditional office, most property types are doing quite well. In industrial warehouses, as you mentioned, rents are still going up in, in most markets and are huh. expected to continue. In, in multifamily rentals, we're seeing a little bit of softness in some markets where there was a lot of supply, but long-term we're not concerned because we know we have a structural lack of housing. So there's retail, believe it or not, retail who was you know not everyone's favorite a couple of years ago. Um, even retail assets are doing pretty well right now. So the publicly traded real estate investment trust did pretty poorly in 22 and 23. Was this a rate story or is this just a question of too much of, of one type of product, not enough of, of another? The, um, the interest rate story definitely played into it. But if you think about you know REITs and who invests in REITs, there are definitely pure play real estate investors who invest in REITs like us and some of our competitors. But there's also lots of individual investors who are investing in REITs. There's a lot of lots of big index funds that are investing in REITs. So it's not always a you know a real estate decision maker who is um, influencing the the cost of some of these stocks. But overall, I would say that if you were to take something away from the difference between the public markets and the private markets. The public markets react very quickly um, and often overreact. And and we do think that there has been an overreaction here. However, the themes are fairly similar. 
if you look at some of the office REITs, um, they've been clobbered. And that's a reflection, of course, of people's concerns around the office market. But what's interesting in the public space is that um, the best office REITs, meaning the office REITs that have the highest quality assets, the the kind that I, I mentioned before, ESG qualifications, modern, new, um, near public transportation, those have taken about the same hit as ones with class B assets. So so that doesn't really make sense. There's, there is um, some kind of a play there. Also, if you look at alternatives, right, some of the um, self-storage, data centers, some of the alternative sectors within real estate in the public markets have reacted quite differently um, than you might expect and from one another. So, you know, right now, most REITs are still selling at a pretty significant discount to net asset value, which net asset value would be a good proxy for real estate value for the actual asset value. So that that's an opportunity, you know, for us, we see that as an opportunity. And, and our takeaway is that the public markets have overreacted and overshot, and the private markets have underreacted. And somewhere in the middle is the right value. Huh, that's really that's really interesting. So with the caveat that Wall Street has been wrong about this for you know, two or three years, Wall Street is now anticipating at least two rate cuts in 2024. Should real estate investors be thinking about this? If that happens, what, what would the impact be? And do you think that's a realistic uh, outcome? Well, first of all, I think we should all be praying for that because that would be very, very good for real estate overall. Um, you know, from a realistic perspective, I don't anticipate any of that happening in the first half of the year. I anticipate, and I, I say this extremely sadly, I think the first half of the year is going to be, you know, more of the same of what we've seen. And it's going to be a very interesting 2024 all around the world. You have, you know, lots of things going on around interest rates and, you know, stock markets and business, but underlying all of that are a lot of very high profile elections around the world, not just the US. And you have, you know, a geopolitical tinderbox in in many places. So it, it is gonna be very, very interesting. If you look at, you know, what is happening with inflation, what is happening, um, you know, if you really interrogate some of the jobs numbers, and you know where the consumer seems to be going, um, it would lead you to believe, I think, that you know we're not going to see any more hikes, and that sometime next year we're going to start to see, um, you know, some decreases. Whether we get to two, I, I certainly hope so. And you know, it it really, I think, um, I don't think anyone has the expectation that we're going to go back to zero interest rates. But if we could just get down to like two or three instead of four or five, that would be pretty amazing. Uh, at this point, I would take, you know, low fours yeah. would be a huge, huge change. But you mentioned something that I have to ask about. We have all these elections, both here and abroad. How do geopolitics and elections affect commercial real estate? Well, I'm going to come off as very cynical, but, um, you know, we keep talking about this recession and when a recession is going to come. And I just have a hard time believing that we're going to be in a recessionary environment um, facing a presidential election in this country. I, I think that everyone is going to do everything in their power for that not to happen. Meaning across, across pulling all the levers from the federal government to the Federal Reserve, everybody's looking to avoid a recession, especially if, real, if inflation keeps falling the way it exactly. has been over the past year and a half. I mean, you could easily look at 
CPI and say real estate peaked in June 2022, mm-hmm. it's been straight down for the next 18 months, right? Right, right. exactly. Huh. Quite, quite fascinating. It's a technology, it's a new asset class, and it's a new monetary system. That's Kathy Wood, CEO of asset manager ARK Invest, talking about cryptocurrency. And that's just the kind of cheerleading you'd expect from someone who created one of the first Bitcoin ETFs. But history demonstrates she could be right. There are striking parallels between the development of crypto and the creation of one of the first asset classes, stocks, by the Dutch in the 1600s. To explore more, listen to Evolving Money from Coinbase and Bloomberg Media Studios, wherever you get your podcasts. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. So your global COO, let, let's talk a little bit about the global strategy. How does PGM, which I really think of as a U.S., New Jersey-based real estate investment company, how do you think about the global investing opportunities that are out there? Well, it's very interesting that um, as much as PGM is a global brand, um, it, it does always come down to Prudential being in New Jersey. And it, it gets discussed all the time. But we are, um, within PGM Real Estate in particular, a very, very global company. Um, we operate in 14 different countries, and we have been investing in Europe and Asia for um, you know 20 to 25 years. We've been at this for a very long time. Now, our U.S. businesses are larger and more mature, and it's really just because we have a long head start in the U.S. Um, over our international businesses. But you know, today's investor, especially the most sophisticated investors, they're investing globally, and they're allocating globally. And it used to be, especially from the perspective of an American investor in real estate, that in order to leave the home country, in order to invest in Europe, in order to invest in Asia, there had to be a huge return premium. It was it was the way of compensating for the country risk, maybe some currency risk, and just the general um, you know lack of certainty around investing in a market that maybe you don't know that much about. And that has completely changed in that the driving factor behind people being global investors is really around diversification. It's far less around yield premium. Now, you can certainly chase yield premiums in developing markets, but if you're investing in, um, in, in non-developing markets outside of your home country and they're mature markets, you should not expect much of a risk premium. At the end of the day, huh. it's about diversification because if you think about it, think about the world right now. Right now in the U.S., as much as we may complain about what's going on here, most global investors would tell you that the greatest prospect for income growth and for economic growth is in the U.S. And you would want to be, if you're an Asian investor, there's certainly a lot of growth that can go on in Asia, but it's a bit more volatile. You might want to have some eggs in the U.S. basket. You might want to have some eggs in the European basket. So global investing is just you know here to stay, in my view. It's much more of a trend. And if you want to be a big global player in any particular asset class or asset type, you have to be a global provider. So, so let's look around the world and, and get an assessment of what's going on. 
when I look at Europe, I see a not only a very mature area, but I also see an economy that hasn't really recovered fully from the pandemic or arguably from the great financial crisis and is uh, seems to be rolling from one country's recession to the next. Now Germany is looking really yep. soft. What do you see in terms of opportunities in Europe? We definitely still see opportunity in Europe, but in terms of, you know, the economies and you mentioned Germany, Germany definitely is, you know, is a concern for us, right? We invest quite a bit in Germany, the UK, um, Brexit has not been kind to real estate values um, in in the UK, but there are still opportunities, and it's a lot of the same themes. Which you know, for us, we really think of them around um, demographics, um, around digitalization, and around decarbonization. And if you really think about demographics, there's a lot of the same story, which um, you know also often leads you to the living sectors. We think about for um, young people needing affordable first-time apartments. For families, maybe with interest rates where they are and with housing costs where they are not being able to afford that to buy a single-family home. Maybe they want to rent a single-family home. Young professionals may be um, remaining renters for much longer than they used to because the barriers to home ownership are so much higher. We have an aging population. We need seniors housing. There's so many different aspects of housing that we just don't have enough of, particularly at the affordable end of the spectrum. Affordable housing is a crisis almost everywhere in the world. And in particular, affordable seniors housing is really in crisis. Huh. Really, really interesting. So so let's, let's address Brexit, which hasn't come up recently. I was genuinely shocked it even happened because it was so obvious the negative economic ramifications that would lead from it. Um, how are things in the UK? Have they recovered from that? Is this still a persistent drag on, on their economy? And what does that mean to their real estate? I think it, it is still a persistent drag. I think that you see evidence of um, businesses that um, were, from, from a regulatory perspective, in London, and now maybe they're in Ireland, maybe they're in the Netherlands. You definitely have seen a bit of a drain from London. There are pockets of the London office market that are not doing that well. The good news is that London does have a little bit more of a modern stock than a lot of other cities from an office perspective. But definitely, I mean, inflation has really taken a toll on the UK. And while it's certainly getting better, um, if you think about kind of just you know, constant dominoes falling of Brexit, and then the pandemic, and the war in Ukraine, and inflation, and the high energy costs, and the high food costs. It's it's really noticeable. I I can tell you, I travel to London quite a bit, and even just as a visitor, I notice how much more expensive everything is. Huh. And and that traces back to Brexit, not just the recent bout of. Inflation. I think it's a combination of things, but I think Brexit was the first domino to fall. Huh. And and you mentioned demographics. Um, we know you're an investor in Asia. Are you an investor in Japan? We and, are. And what, what's going on there? Their demographics are uniquely challenging. Yes, uniquely challenging. And, um, you know, if you, the, the one very positive thing is that interest rates are still relatively low in Japan. Still. Um, not as low as they had been, but they're, they're still low. And they're still, not negative anymore. Right, right? exactly. <laughs> they're still very accommodative. Of real estate, but you know the demographic story in Japan is very difficult with just an you know 
really, really a preponderance of the population is aging, and that just keeps, um, you know, increasing. You know, not a whole lot of immigration into Japan, so definitely a problem. And you know, there was a lot of hype around the Olympics and what that might mean for Japan, and I think a lot of that ultimately, you know, didn't come to fruition from a tourism perspective. Now, you know. It's sad to say for my Japanese colleagues, but you know the yen is quite weak, and so I think that there has been an increase in tourism. I was recently in Japan, and、um, I saw a lot of American families traveling there. It used to be cost prohibitive to bring a family to Tokyo, and and now it's not. So hopefully, there's some kind of a jumpstart there. But but definitely, the aging population、um, in Japan is is tough, and the fact that there's been very very little real wage growth there. Huh. Really, really interesting. Let me throw you a, a curveball.、Um, tell us about Real Asset X. What what's going on there? This is almost like a Skunk Works project you guys have. <laughs> Real Asset X is our、um, innovation lab that we recently launched, and、um, the purpose of it is really to help to advance、um, technology and innovation, particularly around ESG in the real estate industry. Not just for our portfolio, but for the industry. More broadly, and you know, we're really looking at kind of two different sides of our lab. One is、um, a bit more operational, where we're thinking of ways to more efficiently run our own business, more efficiently run our own properties, to、um, use our data in ways that、um, help us to run the business, help us to serve our clients better.、Um, on the other side of the lab is、um, a bit more aspirational of what could we do with all that data? What、um, better investment outcomes? Could we have by leveraging our data? You know, I mentioned that our U.S. businesses are very mature. We launched our、um, core open end fund that I used to manage. We launched that in 1970. We have data going back that far, and and we have lots of data. And in in our our lending business, we've been lending for way longer than that. So we have lots of data that we can leverage. And so we're very excited about that. We have、um, several university partnerships where we are working on certain problem statements. And、um, we have them all around the world, so that's very, very exciting. And you know, it's a it's a journey, right? I'll tell you that our、um, our first problem statement that we worked on with、um, one of our university partners here in the United States was really around trying to predict multifamily rents, and you know, using、um, artificial intelligence, using some machine learning, using、um, our own data, but other data as well. And at the end of the day, you know, we didn't come up with a, a great answer. But now we have, you know, a lot of new information that we're going to ask the question differently、um, as we continue to pursue this. So it is、um, definitely a trial and error. And I think that when people give the impression that they kind of plugged in the AI machine and all of a sudden they have, you know, really really great answers, that that's not how it works. It it, it takes a lot of work. And I think our launching of our lab. And our outreach to our university partners is our way of acknowledging that this is a process and it's a learning process, and it takes more than than just a real estate investment manager to make progress there. So, sounds really exciting. All right, I only have you for a few more moments, so let me jump to our favorite questions that we ask all of our guests. Starting with, what have you been streaming lately? Tell, give us your favorite Netflix or Amazon or podcast, whatever, whatever's <clears throat> keeping you entertained. Sure, I I recently finished、um, Daisy Jones and the Six, 
which um, was recommended to me by another woman in the business. And um, I'm uh, I'm going to be 58 next week. Um, so for someone of my age, it just brings you back to kind of your middle school and high school years with the music. It's fantastic. It's a little bit of the story of Fleetwood Mac, not Loosely based based. on, right? Fantastic, yeah. uh, The woman who played Daisy Jones, I was, I don't know, a third way through it when my wife says, you know, that's Elvis Presley's daughter. I was like, what? I had had no no idea. idea. Right. There you go. She was fantastic. Fantastic. So I I really loved that. And um, in terms of uh, a a movie or documentary, um, also um, perfect for a woman of my age is um, called Being Mary Tyler Moore. And it's about Mary Tyler Moore and... You know, she was such a icon for young girls in the 70s of she lived on her own. She had this cool job. She was intentionally single. She had this social life. She was dating. It was um, really very formative. And they, and they speak to a lot of um, women, mostly um, famous women, who were so influenced by watching that show. And, and I definitely was. And she was really, um, you know, very much of a trailblazer and a remarkable woman. So I'd recommend that. Huh. I'm going to put that on my list. Um, and when you were talking earlier, I was thinking of two things. Um, I don't know if you spend much time on YouTube, but there are some amazing channels. One is um, Architectural Digest does mm. this. So there's lots of house listings and just stupid, you know, spec $20 million mansions mm. in L.A.'s. But the thing they do that's so interesting, you, you kind of reference this, is they'll sit down with an architect and he will describe a particular type of um, architecture that's endemic to a specific city, or they'll describe a very specific, so one guy who does New York, here's the history of New York uh, residential apartment buildings Mm -hmm. and how they've progressed over the years, and the one I just, I didn't see it yet, but it just dropped was um, uh, New York museums and the Mm -hmm. architecture of Guggenheim, MoMA, the Met, and Whitney. And just like, if you like architecture, it's kind of fascinating. Um, The other thing you mentioned that really made me think of a different channel was about the ESG and the location close to mass transit. Mm. There is this, he's kind of crazy, Canadian expat who relocated to the Netherlands with his family and his channel is called Not Just Bikes. And it's all about how to build a city mm. that is not only net zero, but just built around mass transit, not cars. And it's, again, if you're interested yes. in um, urban planning, right. city design, uh, and architecture, endlessly fascinating. That sounds that, great. That's a rabbit hole you can yeah. fall down to. And, um, so, so you mentioned one of your mentors early. T- yes. Tell us about who your mentors were and and who helped shape your career. Uh, The person who was most influential in my career from a young age um, is a woman named Yvonne Compatello, who um, I worked for when I was in my late 20s and early 30s. And um, she taught me everything I know about real estate, but also taught me a lot about being a woman in this business. She taught me um, how to be a very tough negotiator. She taught me how to kind of manage um, working in a man's world. And she um, always expected a lot of me, but also always supported me. And um, I've tried to emulate some of the way that she managed me and the way she managed and led others. Um, It really was very influential. Very interesting. Let's talk about books. 
What are some of your favorites? What are you reading right now? Right now, I'm reading a book called Eligible by Curtis Sittenfeld, who um, she writes a lot of, you know, more pop culture, I guess, type books. But this happens to be a modern um, take on Pride and Prejudice. So huh. Pride and Prejudice, obviously, was very tongue-in-cheek itself. And this is a, a modern tongue-in-cheek version of that, of, you know, an overbearing mother trying to marry off her daughters, et cetera. But I'm really enjoying that. I tend to read to escape. And I um, also um, just finished a book by Daniel Silva, who has written like 32 books, and I think I've read every single one of them. Really? And, um, you know, it's a, uh, a series of spy novels, and instead of the CIA, it's the Mossad. And um, the protagonist is, in addition to being an amazing Mossad agent, he's an um, art historian and art, an artist and art restorer. So it kind of combines things I'm very interested in when I was young. I wanted to be a spy, um, and I love art. So for me, those are great books. Huh, really? What's the name of the Silva book? Um, this one, I think, is called The Collector. Huh, really interesting. And we're down to our final two questions. What sort of advice would you give a recent college grad interested in a career in real estate investing? My greatest advice that I give to everyone is try to do a little bit of everything. If you ultimately want to specialize, if you ultimately want to only do equity acquisitions, that's great. Don't make that decision when you're 22 or 23 years old. Do a little bit of debt. Do a little bit of equity. Do acquisitions. Do asset management. Do dispositions. Do portfolio management. I think that um, especially when you hit a crisis, the most well-rounded real estate people are the ones who've done a lot and they're the most successful in a down environment. If you think about it, when you you might not um, you might be an asset manager, but if you've never worked in debt, how are you going to know how to do a workout of your loan that now is in default? So it I just think do a little bit of everything. And the one regret that I have is that um, so far I've only worked in the U.S. in terms of living and and working. And um, I wish I had had an excellent adventure. You know, three years in London, three years in Paris, something like that. And I would recommend that to all young people. Huh, very interesting. And our final question, what do you know about the world of real estate investing today you wish you knew 25 or so years ago when you were first getting started? I wish I knew that um, it would evolve in the way that it has. I think that when I got into the business, which is 35 years ago, it was um, far more opaque and um, less institutional. And um, I guess that for some people, that made it feel like, um, you know, it was, there were higher barriers to entry to being in the business. But I actually really appreciate how much more transparent the business is and how much more institutional it is. And the fact that um, it's more accessible to more people. It used to just be only the wealthiest people in the world could invest in institutional real estate. I know anybody can, and I think that's terrific. Huh. Very, very interesting. Thank you, Kathy, for being so generous with your time. We have been speaking with Kathy Marcus. She's co-CEO and global chief operating officer at PGM Real Estate. If you enjoyed this conversation, check out any of the previous 500 or so we've done over the past nine years. You can find those at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Sign up for my daily reading list at Ritholtz.com. Follow me for however much longer it continues to circle the drain at Ritholtz on Twitter. Follow all of the Bloomberg family of podcasts on Twitter at Podcast. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack team that helps 
put these conversations together each week. My audio engineer is Rich Samnani. Atika Valbron is my project manager. Sean Russo is my researcher. Anna Luck is my producer. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at AmericanExpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Meet Gary. Gary's about to become an Einstein in an instant. Whoa, Einstein hair. I like it. That's right, Gary, because you're using Salesforce powered by Einstein AI to connect data, predict business trends, generate personalized content, and wow customers. I do feel a lot smarter. Because you're not just Gary anymore. You're Gary, empowered by Einstein AI. Did you hear that, team? I'm an Einstein. Oh, can I get a selfie? The number one AI CRM. Now everyone's an Einstein with Salesforce. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch strata coaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com.